Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend Jason Howarth, Vice President of Marketing for Panini America, the leading sports and entertainment collectibles company. Welcome, Jason. How are you doing today? Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to have you here. You know, we've we've known each other for a little while. We've had some interaction in Grapevine, Texas and in Nashville around the NFL draft. And I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of the brand. And I, I also have kind of a little peek inside into these very cool moments that you get to experience with professional athletes in this amazing industry. And so I'm excited to have you on and have you share that with our viewers? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you got a little peek behind the curtain in Nashville when we were out there visiting Trent Dilfer. Yeah, so to give the to give the audience some some background on that, Jason and I were both in Nashville at the same time. I was speaking at a conference, and you were there, I think, to walk Kyler Murray up to be ex, you know picked number <laughs> one. And I called you one night. We're having a little meet and greet. I was with the head of HyperX. I was like, yo, Jason, you got to come over. And then we're hanging out. And then the next day, you told me that you're going to go see Trent Dilfer. And I said, dude, I'm from Fresno. Like, he beat the USC Trojans in 92 in the Freedom Bowl. And I need to get a picture of that dude to send to my uncle because he tells stories to this day about driving back to Fresno from LA. He's like, we owned California that day. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. And, you know, Trent has been um, a partner of Panini for a very long time. He had uh, just started um, to become the head coach at uh, Lipscomb Academy out there in Nashville, the football head coach, yeah. uh, who's actually his first spring practices. They've come a long way since then. He actually played in their state in the state championship this past season. Wow! So I mean, he's he's a QB guru and a and a good foot and a great football head coach. So, but yeah, for us, it was an opportunity to just go out there and visit him and and connect with them. And you know, relationships in the trading card space with these guys are so super important to you know our 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 authenticity and everything we do. Yeah. So we really try to make sure that we maintain those connections. Well, and from what I learned from you, it sounds like, you know, the, the trading card deal is the first deal that a lot of these athletes are signing the moment they become pros. Is that accurate? That is accurate. So I'm actually here in Mobile, beautiful Mobile, Alabama at the Senior Bowl with about 135 other college eligible football seniors who are playing in the game this week. We're a partner and a sponsor of the Senior Bowl this year for the first time. And so this is, for us, the first opportunity to kind of connect and engage with these players and, and give them, you know, an inside look about what's about to happen for them in the next few months here as they get through the Senior Bowl and they prepare for their pro day and they start to, you know, look at fulfilling that dream of playing in the NFL. And so for us, it's really important for us to make that connection early on, make sure they understand, you know, that the biggest you know, off field deal they'll ever get in their life will be, you know, a rookie trading card deal for most of these players Uh, that, and that, and I was just talking to these guys last night and telling them, you know, our relationship starts here in mobile. It'll go through the NFL draft. It'll go through your rookie season. It'll go through your entire NFL career. And then when you're done playing football, you're still going to be signing cards for us, whether you put on a gold jacket or not. And so that's pretty powerful when you are explaining to these, you know, 20 year old kids, Hey, you're meeting the brand that is going to be a part of your life for the next 30, 40 years. Wow. Yeah. I'm curious. Kind yeah, of, it's insane. I'm curious kind of what that pitch is. Number one, um, curious of the competition, the, the trading card space. Number one, I know you guys are the leader. Congratulations, by the way. But you know, it's pretty infamous as far as not the trading card space, but uh, players going into professional sports for the first time. I mean, you know, everybody knows that there's a, I think, a, a high rate of bankruptcy over the course of these careers, even when somebody makes a whole lot of money. When you're pitching these players, how much of it is 
hey, we want to do a deal with you. You're going to make money, etc. How much of it is almost counseling kids really still on, hey, the smart decisions and, and what to do with that money and things of that nature. Is that part of it at all? Yeah. So, well, we say out of that conversation as it relates to the financial planning side, but they do have resources here at the Senior Bowl where they talk to them about financial planning. And as they make that next step into the league, the NFL Players Association has, you know, some financial resources that they share with them and kind of walk them through you know, the, the PA, the NFL Players Association, think, think, I think does a really great job of telling these players, at some point, your career is going to end. Yeah. And that could be 20 years from now. That could be three years from now. Something could happen. Yeah. What are you going to do? How are you going to plan for that? You don't know when you're, sometimes you don't have control when your career is going to end. And True. so what are you doing to make sure that you're prepared for that? when that time comes, whether you're ready for it or not. And so, you know, so they do a really good job of, you know, sharing that, you know, you know, our job really is, you know, twofold in terms of, you know, talking to these players. One, you know, is these kids, you know, ever since they were little started playing football and, you know, just any sport, you know, you think about someday I'm going to play in the league. Someday I'm going to play for my favorite team. Someday I'm going to be on a trading card. Like we fulfill part of that prophecy, you know, we're the first part of it. And so, you know, there's that part. And then the other thing that I reinforced to these guys, you know, I mentioned that, you know, the biggest trading card deal they're ever going to get is their rookie trading card deal, because mm. that's the most popular card, you know, among fans. They always want to get that rookie card of a player. Good point. And so explaining to them, like, you know, the easiest thing you can do right now, between now and the time that you're drafted is sign cards and get paid every time you sign your name. Wow. It's not hard. You know, and that puts you in a, a another position to, you know, you know, prepare, you know, for the draft, take care of the things that you need to take care of and not have to think or worry about any of those things. And so I, I think that was really prevalent this past season. You know, when we hit the pandemic, we had all these kids that understood that there was this process about, you know, how to plan and prepare for the NFL draft. You go to the combine, you have your pro day you get to fly on planes and go meet with NFL teams and crush your interviews. Yeah. And then at some point you're going to be drafted, you know, in the NFL draft. Well, you know, not too far after the combine was over in Indianapolis, it was, we're shutting down all pro days. You're not going to be able to fly anywhere to meet with NFL teams. You're going to have to do it on things like zoom, which no one had even thought of before. It was always like, we need you in the room so we can go over things. And so, right it really kind of flipped them on their side, you know, then, you know, facilities are shut down. They can't train. You know, so we had guys, you know, training out on, you know, in public parks, you know, with other people. <laughs> Tom you know, to Brady sure was training in public and, parks of all people. Yeah. yeah. And got in trouble for it. And yeah. now he's in the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, but you know, so they, they went through all that process. It completely turned, turned things upside down for them. But the one constant was, just sign your cards, sign your cards. You'll get mm. paid every time you sign your cards and you know, you need to prepare, you need to do some other things. And now things are all over the place and you don't know what's going to happen. You at least have some money in your, in your pocket to make sure that you can take care of the things that you need to take care of. Yeah. Um, it was crazy. I think for me, like, you know, I've been with Panini for 10 years and, and so I've always known how important we are to the player but I think it really kind of heightened the awareness for it. You know, when you're standing next to a player from Wiley, Texas, you know, yeah. out on a football field and they're like, you know, running routes, you know, with their friends to, you know, prepare for the draft, which is like when they're supposed to be in a performance facility. Wow. You know? Yeah. I bet that really separated too the, the guys who are really going after it and the guys who aren't as much. I mean, you know, when you, when you have to say, Hey, I'm going to get prepared. I'm going to train no matter what, if I'm in a high school football field, rather than having a coach or a performance center or, you know, something that makes you feel like, Oh, I made it. This is official. It's going to get me motivated yeah. to get in there. I bet some people probably rose and fell in those draft boards based on, you know, how are they, they were preparing in their backyards essentially. Right. For sure. And you think about it, you know, you're this close to fulfilling like your dream, you know, and, and then all of a sudden everything, you know, about preparing for that dream, everything that everyone's told you, what you need to do to get there 
yeah. changes on a dime and you're like, and then no one knows what to do. Yeah, it was crazy. I have a question and this might be a weird one, but how much do you ever have people redo their signatures or like, hey, you should really look if you're going to be signing cards, it should look like that. Is that something that you ever have a talk with athletes on or is that not an issue at all? So, no, uh, look, they're good, they're great looking autographs and they're not so good looking autographs. And the thing that I think is really interesting is that, you know, every time we get around, you know, a player, you know, we'll ask them how, when did you start, you know, practicing your signature? Yeah. You know, in some cases they're like, oh man, I started it when I was in the fifth grade or sixth grade or whatever, when they, or when they started to realize that, you know, there was a potential for something to happen, yeah. you know, that would be, you know, really significant. And then you come into this period of time where like in the last 10 to 15 years, they don't even teach cursive in schools anymore. So like people aren't used to having Good a signature boy. per se. And wow. all, and so but I forget who it was. There was a basketball player two years ago that literally got like, you know, some of those like cursive beginner books, you know, at a bookstore to practice, you know, his signature. He'd gone through Smart you know, guy. all of, you know, yeah all of school, all of college, wow. no one ever said, Hey, you know what? You need to sit down and like, learn how to sign your name. Jeez. You know? And so he ended up doing that. I know it's insane. If you think about it, like it's insane. Wow. But, I, I redid my signature many years ago and nobody's ever paid me, you know, to sign a card <laughs> or anything, but I was on a skateboard tour for six months straight and I did my first demo and, you know, I'm at this big music festival and we're one of the draws and I go to watch some bands. My team manager starts chasing after me. He's like, John, where are you going? You need to go sign autographs. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> but the we ended up doing these really big demos and we would literally do autographs for two hours after a demo. And it's just, you know, yeah. you go to some remote town in the middle of nowhere, people see you on a stage and they they just assume that you're you're somebody, but I redid my signature to be able to do it super fast. And to this day, yeah. that was a long time ago, but to this day now I've done it the same way. And my brother actually really opened my mind as to how to do your signature. He said, John, it's not so much your name as much as it is make your mark. And I was mm -hmm. like, Oh, okay. Like obviously it should be representative of your name, but it doesn't have to be like your name in cursive, you know? Right. And there, and there are some, there are some athletes that totally get that. And then there are some that don't, you know, and we've got, we, we run the whole gambit. So, but when we do see a beautiful autograph, we always like point out to the player, like, wow, you have an amazing autograph. This looks amazing. You know, so just that reinforcement. Yeah. Well, they're, they're probably worrying about other things other than their autograph. I hope so. Probably their <laughs> jump shot or hitting free throws or, or catching the ball with their yeah. toes in, in in the field, but let's talk yeah. about this. You know, there, I mean, when I was a kid, eighties, nineties, you know, trading cards were huge. I remember going to the store. I remember getting the Beckett, you know, to see all the, the values. I remember the ones that had gum in them or just like the various, you know, yeah. different trading cards we get at the grocery store or the sports store. This is rising once again. It seems like it's unprecedented. Talk a little bit about why is this happening? Why is there this rise uh, in trading cards? And what are the differences between the last trend and, and this one? I would say the biggest difference between the last trend and this one is that this trend is built for longevity and value and maintaining the value of the card. Okay. So back in the 80s and 90s, they, they often refer to that as the junk wax period which is where basically, you know, manufacturers just couldn't help themselves. They continued to print and print and print and print, you know, because it was so popular. Right. They wanted to just keep printing when the, the whole concept behind trading cards is scarcity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so all those kids, including me, you know, those eighties and nineties cards, my Bo Jackson rated rookie from 1987, I thought was going to buy me a house, not even close, Dang it. you know, I know, right? So all those, because they're so overproduced, where now yeah. these cards, there's unique elements to all these cards. So, you know, whether it's, you know, numbered to one, unique numbering, you know, there's only 50 cards in the world of that specific card. You know, we number cards so that people know all over the world, 
hey, there's only 99 of these cards in the world. You know, there's unique parallels and different that differentiate the value of a card. So some might be like a red, a red background or variation, mm. you know, a blue variation. And each of them have their own value assigned to them just based in the secondary market. And then, of course, you have the autographs for, from the players and we cut up jerseys that the players wear and we put them in cards. Yeah, that's uh, we super embed, cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. We, we embed jewels and diamonds and into cards, you know, along with the player's autograph. We've got, you know, wow. you know, gold and, you know, silver Troy ounces embedded in cards. And so all these things that build in this value, you know, to maintaining the longevity of the card. And, and we make sure that even in, you know, no matter how popular the product is and the popular, the, the trading card category, like you said, is on fire, it's unprecedented, you know, what's happening now is, you know, there's so much demand for the product, mm-hmm. you know, and there's so limited supply because we're so committed to that scarcity value. Yeah. Right. And so what we do is we, when, you know, we hit a certain number and unique, you know, element within a product, we move on to developing a new product and that has its own uniqueness to it and scarcity levels so that, you know, we can cater to the global community. And so, you know, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious, like, okay, scarcity demand, obviously, you know, it's helpful if you can we make more money per unit, essentially, you don't have to have as many units. But you got to have a lot of discipline there from a business perspective because, right. you know, people are, especially public companies, shareholders, it's just maximize it right yeah. now without a lot of thought for the future. Yeah. But also my other yeah. thought is, okay, if you're keeping everything super scarce and exclusive, how many products are you able to generate? And it sounds like your your answer to that is a different type of product. Like, let's say Luka yeah. Doncic, right, here in Dallas. Mm-hmm certain yeah. type of card, maybe with the jersey in it or something like that, and you get to 50 or 100, are you saying that then your process is, okay, let's create something that's got some gold in it or it's got the different backgrounds? Is is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that and, and price point. So, you know, our price points are designed to cater to a number of different audiences and demographics. So, you know, whether that's a product that sells for $2.99 or $4.99 a pack or, you know, $20.99 for a box of four packs at Target and Walmart, you know, designed to cater to, you know, kids or people that just want to collect and all those other things. And then we have products that scale all the way up. We have a product called Eminence that sells for, you know, anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000 a box, depending on what it is, you know, and there's, you know, 10, you know, there's 10 to 12 cards in that product. Right. Uh, but they're all very unique, whether it's, you know, well, the, the, the level of player that's in that product is, you know, just top of the line player autographs, jerseys included in them, you know, precious metals included in them, you name it. So, and we've got all those mid range products as well. So that we're touching every part of the audience, you know, from that side of it, you know, you had mentioned, you know, the growth and what, what's kind of transformed and changed. And it's funny, I saw an interesting stat a few weeks ago someone had posted that, you know, in the last year, Bitcoin had rise 350% uh-huh. and Luka Doncic rookie cards had rise 758%. Wow. There you go. Like I, I saw that and I was like, Whoa, that, that's a stat that I, I need to keep in my back pocket because that's just so super impressive to like get people to understand where the trading card category is right now compared to something that's also super hot, like Bitcoin or crypto cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And I'm thinking there's probably less volatility in the trading car market too versus crypto because you never know where that thing's going to go up or down, depending on the day, it seems. Yeah. And that's super important too. And, and not to, you know, you know, switch, you know, switch lanes or whatever. But, you know, we launched our first blockchain products at the beginning of this year and begin, well, b- January, 2020, beginning of this year, it feels like it, we're just stuck in the same year. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we launched that in January and, and we spent two and a half years kind of figuring out like, how do we bring blockchain into trading cards? You know, what's the point of it? What's the purpose of it? Yeah. You know, and how do we get, you know, everyday consumers to kind of understand the value proposition, because, you know, to your point, there's volatility in the cryptocurrency, 
well, there's volatility on the success and performance of a player. A player goes off and goes crazy. The value of his card rises. The player doesn't do well, doesn't perform. It, you know, so we're like, okay, so we don't need to introduce another variable that, you know, has volatility and, you know, into our product mix, right? Like we've got enough of that when it comes to players. So we're very focused on, you know, figuring out what the best way to go about introducing blockchain was. And we felt like, you know, we're going to tie our blockchain products to the U.S. dollar. So one, collectors and consumers understand the value when they look at a card and they say, oh, this is what a value of a card is from a, from a U.S. dollar perspective, yeah. as opposed to a cryptocurrency. Number two, they don't need to figure out like, hey, do I need some kind of like crypto wallet? How do I do this? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to buy? And then I go get these cards. Like, we're like, no, let's not do that. Let's just focus on building our, our, our private blockchain platform that lives on our website, PaniniAmerica.net. We're now releasing blockchain cards every week, mm-hmm. you know, on our platform and they're available in U.S. dollars, you know, so that people understand the value of, you know, that card. We've had some blockchain cards that are tied to physical cards so that you actually get the physical card along with the digital blockchain asset. Yeah. And so for collectors, they totally understand the value of the physical card. They're not so sure. They're still learning like everybody else what the value of a digital collectible is. Yeah. But they know that they're going to have that for the long term and that that value is going to rise and increase. Yeah. So. I bet in the younger generations, one of the things that I see in gaming and esports is you know, younger kids don't see a difference in value between physical and digital. So, which is a really interesting dynamic, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I think another factor in the trend this time around versus last time is social media and influencers. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's influenced the trading card space? Both, uh, you know, it, yeah, definitely. I mean, the social, like I, like I said, I, I use this as an example. When I was a kid, I used to get on my bike with my friends. We'd, you know, ride our bike down to the locker room, which was our hobby store. We'd hang out in there for like three hours and just open up packs of cards. Yeah. You know, and someone would get a great card and we'd all be like, yeah, high fiving each other. Well, now, you know, you've got what's called case breaking that happens every day where people are like opening up cases and cases of product Mm. all hours of the day. You know, if you're, from an NFL perspective, there are 32 spots in a case break. And so, John, you might have the Dallas Cowboys and I might have the New England Patriots. Surprise, surprise. I'm from Boston. Yep. So I always use that as an example. But I'll know, take every the Niners, by the way, that, over the Cowboys. Just yeah, there you go. I'm a Cowboy. Okay, so take the Niners. <laughs> there you go. There you go. True story. So every card that comes out of, you know, that case that's a 49er goes to you. And every card that comes out of the box that the case that is a New England Patriot comes to me. Well, you know, let's be fair. You know, the Cincinnati Bengals is not, are not a very compelling team historically. Sure. Well, this year, if you got the Cincinnati Bengals in a case break, you'd be super excited because you'd get every Joe Barrow card that came out of the product. Good point. Right. Yeah. So, so what's happened with case breaking is now that little hobby store that we used to exist and high five each other when we get great cards, yeah. like that case breaking is being viewed all over the world. So everyone is seeing what's happening in the product. And so it's really created this, you know, global community that, you know, is our, is our hobby store. And so just happens to coincide with the pandemic where people need to be socially distanced. There's not a better social distance, more community focused, you know, platform than case breaking. And so, you know, that's been a huge rise in the last, you know, 12 months, right? I mean, case breaking came into the trading card community seven, eight years ago. But I mean, you see this huge uptick where all these other people, including influencers are coming into the space um, and opening up trading cards because they remember it from when they were a kid. And now they're looking at cards and they're like, whoa, these are super cool. Like, I didn't realize that these cards look like this. They didn't look like it when I, they didn't look like they do now when I was a kid. Right. Like they're super like incredible. We just did this. We, we just signed a, an exclusive with John Morant right before Christmas. And one of the things we did in Memphis was we, we have a really popular insert called Color Blast mm-hmm. that typically is in our prison product. And it's super like you know, amazing, like very vibrant and colors. Like there's just like colors exploding all around the player. And I was like, wow, this would be super compelling. 
you know, we need to like showcase this. And so we decided that we'd build, we'd paint a 30 foot mural in Memphis, a mile from uh, the FedEx forum. And we did the color blast um, of John Morant and people are just going crazy over it. You know, and they look at it and they see it as a piece of art and not realizing like, wait, that's a trading card. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize trading cards look like that anymore. And so, you know, so bringing that into the mix, and I think you're seeing a lot of like the sneaker culture come into the trading card space. Mm. You know, you've got guys like, you know, I'm going to shout out a couple of dudes like Gary V, who's like obviously, you know, been in the trading card game for, you know, four or five years now, been talking about it forever. Yeah. You know, is in the space. Dudes like Steve Ioki are in the mix and like they're opening up cards every day, you know. So you've got those people and then you've got, you know, other influencers and, and streamers that are jumping into it. You know, I know a lot of streamers like, we, you know, you, you know, from, you know, two years ago, we were trying to integrate streamers into, you know, into the Panini space with us where we'd get them to open up cards in the middle of their, you know, while they're gaming. Yeah. You know, and now you've got guys doing that all the time and they're seeing like, whoa, wait, I'm driving engagement on my platform you know, by opening these products because people want to see it, you know, in addition to just playing a game. So that's been really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, I had a question. Number one, what is the, the main platform that you're seeing the case breaking happening on? Is is it happening on Twitch where everybody's watching games? Is it YouTube? Is it other other platforms or, or all of them? So there's a mix. Like, I, I think that, you know, I think you've got some case breakers that are pushing into Twitch. And I think you've got other case breakers that are living on case breaking platforms, mm. you know, like a use like a stream, a streaming platform or YouTube for that matter, but mainly like a streaming platform that has live chat capabilities and all those other things so that they can engage with their, you know, with their audience. That's cool. Yeah. And then are you seeing like, regular people like you and I doing case breaking back and forth? Or are you primarily seeing, you know, these, these popular personalities who are going to say, Oh, another way to be relevant sort of a thing. You're seeing both. And I think like the, the, the other thing that's happening with the case breaking side of it is that they're becoming their own influencers, you know, so as people become more engaged in trading cards, like from like just mainstream engagement, and they're jumping in, like trying to find like the most relevant, most, you know, the, the uh, most authentic case breakers. They're turning to these guys that have been case breaking for the last seven or eight years. I won't say who, but <laughs> we had a very high profile musician who kind of jumped into the space quietly case breaking, you know, under a different name. Cool. And so, you know, so he's been in the mix and, you know, so he'll sit up, he'll randomly like DM me and be like, yo, hey, I just saw that stuff that looks amazing, you know? And of course I have, you know, my kids are like, wait, did they just, did they really just send you that DM? Yeah. But it's funny because like they're, they're not, they're not highlighting who they are when they're in the middle of that case break. But then I had someone reach out to me and they're like, that's a case breaker saying to me, hey, is, do you know if so-and-so is, you know, being taking part in case breaks? Cause I get this weird like address to send some stuff to. Oh wow. And I did some, I did some background research and I'm thinking that it's this person. Is that right? And I was like, yeah, that's right. But it's so, so cool. like, you know, some of them are like doing it, you know, out there in the open and some of them are just like doing it kind of like, you know, quietly just watching what's happening in the space. So it's cool to see how it's going across all aspects of culture. You talked about, you know, the case breaking culture that's existed before every, you know, the outside world knew about it. You're talking about musicians. You're talking about sneaker culture. Obviously, you know, it kind of reminds me of unboxing videos in in gaming. Probably a lot of similarities there. Talk a little bit about do you see an opportunity? Obviously, we see Pokemon cards really taking off. And we're seeing some, you know, some influencers, you know, posting videos, unboxing those and things of that nature. But from an esports perspective, based on your traditional sports background, what are you kind of seeing in the space? Do you think there's a, a, a spot for trading cards in the esports space? I think we're still trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's a spot, you know, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting, you know, mix because you're trying to look at like, where where are you going to find like volume on a global perspective right so if you're if you're checking boxes esports has the audience right right 
you know, then it's like, okay, where are you selling this beyond your own platforms and trying to navigate and figure that stuff out? And, you know, what other distribution channels are going to make the most sense for that? And so that's where, like, you know, you try to navigate and figure out what's what, whether that's for, you know, esports or any, any sport, to be honest. And so, you know, or any trading card, you know, subject for that matter, whether it be an entertainment, you know, trading card, you know, subject or whether that be a sports subject. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, within esports, the thing that always bothers me is people talk about it like one thing and not talking about the different leagues, the different titles, you know. <laughs> right. So it might be the type of thing that, hey, maybe Call of Duty fans are super into trading cards. League of Legends fans aren't. In traditional sports, how is the split between different sports, different leagues? What's most popular and what's less enticing to their fans? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, if you're looking at it right now, I mean, the, the bass, the, the NBA trading card market is absolutely on fire mm. and it's because there is a global community, right? Like, so, you know, funny enough, but in the middle of the pandemic, we didn't plan this for the pandemic, but we launched our online store in China last April, you know, not planning for a pandemic, but you know, we had, we had already done the legwork. We knew that the market was there. And so we wanted to, you know, we launched our so social platforms in August of 2019 in China. And then we rolled out our, our direct to consumer platform in China in April of 2020. And, you know, what led the way obviously was basketball. I mean, basketball is super compelling in Asia. Yeah. And so they've got a strong following there. You know, the, the players that are playing in this league right now, like kind of just, you know, they, they transcend the game. You know, it doesn't matter whether Zion Williamson is in New Orleans or John Morant is in Memphis. People just love the way they play or mm. even Steph Curry in Golden State. Right. Like, I mean, True. you know, San Francisco is a big market, but I mean, it's still like not, you know, huge. Right. If you right. think if you're thinking about markets. And so, you know, so you've got this huge following of, you know, people that are just following these players. So, you know, NBA is leading the way. We're seeing a lot of strong soccer growth. We just launched our, well, we're just about to launch our Premier League Prism product here uh, in the next few weeks, which is going to be incredible. Cool. Uh, people are super excited about that. We also just signed an exclusive partnership with David Beckham uh, at the beginning of the year. Congratulations. Uh, for autograph trading cool. cards. Yeah, thank you. For autograph trading cards and memorabilia. Did you fi not find anybody better looking to put on a trading card? I mean, was that part of the... <laughs> Well, they won't. They won't put my face on cards. So, oh. so no, we had to. We had to go with David. No, it's yeah. making sense. No, it's um, making sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so we got David in the mix now, and you know, for autograph trading cards and memorabilia, and so his first, you know, his first autographs were available available on our immaculate soccer product that came out about two weeks ago, and then our Prism product, which Prism, you know, is the you know, if you're trying to figure out like what trading cards to buy because there's so many in the market. Yeah. There's definitely like, you know, brands that are super compelling that people are like, Oh my God, I need this. And that product is prism for sure. Mm. Whether that's NBA prism, NFL prism, premier league prism, NASCAR prism, just had a story in the athletic, you know, yesterday that came out on the success of WNBA prism. Cool. I mean, it's super popular. I just mentioned to you guys that we kicked off where we announced our relationship with UFC and the yeah. first product out the door is going to be our UFC Prism product. So what is it about the Prism product specifically that makes it so interesting to the audience? Yeah, so I, I wish I had some examples. I'm in the middle of a hotel, so unfortunately I don't carry cards with me, but otherwise I'd be showing them to you. But, you know, they have like a holographic metallic look to them. Mm. So they pop and then there's like really strong color variation. So when you like kind of switch them up against the light. There's like a different glimmer. And so people go crazy over collecting the various color variations. Yeah. You know, what we call parallels in trading cards is basically a color variation. Or if you're a sneakerhead, it's a different colorway, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, you've got a red one, a purple one, a green one, a camo version, like a stained glass version, a, you know, a shattered ice version, you know? So all these things that kind of like pop and make them really dynamic. And so, you know, people just love that. And then the value of them. I mean, you know, we, we talked about Luka Doncic and, and the rookie trading cards and, and his prism trading cards have skyrocketed, cool. you know, and, and so, you know, all those rookies and even, you know, even the stars, 
you know, are holding their values in that product. Yeah. Well, tell me this. I've always been super curious. How much of how many signatures an athlete has, you know, put out into the world affects the price? I, I hear you talking about like, hey, you know, start signing your signature. I, you know, Hank Aaron passed away very recently. Yeah. And in my office, I have at home, I have a Hank Aaron signed baseball. And, you know, you, mm-hmm. it was funny because a long time ago when I got that from my dad, I, I was looking up the value because I was like, oh, home run king, you know, mm-hmm. how much, how much can I get for this thing? And then it was like, Hank Aaron signed his name many times over the years. <laughs> I was like, ah, uh-huh. it's worth like 175 bucks or something like that. But yeah, how, you know, what, what is the best, I guess, practice for an athlete when it comes to signing a lot, signing a little bit, somewhere in between, what does that look like? Yeah, so there's, a, I think there's various looks at it. Like if you're thinking about a trading card perspective, you know, there's a certain number that happens from a volume-wise perspective that exists on rookies, mm. right? And like I said before, like the, the biggest deal you're going to ever get on a trading cards is your rookie deal because it's the most sought after card. So it doesn't matter whether you're Tom Brady playing in your 10th Super Bowl in a week, you know, you're going to have more signatures your rookie year than you are 20 years into the league, you know? So as you, you know, so as you, you know, increase, you know, your career as your career grows or expands or the longevity of your career, those autographs tend to diminish in terms of quantity, Hmm. right? Like, so after your rookie season, your, you know, your 10th year in the league, you know, you're, you might sign 500 autographs on trading cards, Yeah. right? Like it it just varies. And so, and then on the memorabilia side of it, like, you know, I think we're very focused with our athletes that are exclusive to us of doing like very limited quantities on memorabilia, whether that's on jerseys or on, you know, footballs or soccer balls or basketballs or sneakers, you know, to make sure that there's limited autographs in the market on memorabilia, specifically you use the Hank Aaron example. Yeah. Right. So like we very focused on making sure that there's minimal amount of autograph on memorabilia in the marketplace to maintain the value of that signature long-term, you know, cause these guys, you know, I mean, at some point, you know, you're going to get to Hank Aaron's age and you're signing, you know, you're doing memorabilia signings all over the place or whatever it might be. You know, some of our guys are very focused on, I think the guys that work with Panini specifically from an exclusive memorabilia perspective are very focused on maintaining the long-term value of their, of their signature. Yeah. You know, so they want it to be sought after, they want it to be out there, but they want it to be out there in limited quantities based on whatever the, the product mix is. So, and then of course, you know, here we are a year from, you know, Kobe Bryant dying. Like, I mean, you know, he was our first exclusive athlete, Wow. you know, and we're we're literally a year to the day now. And I mean, none of us could ever have imagined that, you know, we'd be sitting here a year later and Kobe wouldn't be in our lives. Um, you know, you think that you, you, that autograph is not, you know, isn't, you know, it's not infinite. Like it's, at some point it's going to stop. Good point. You know, so, you know, your Hank Aaron example as well, like those are going to, you know, there, there aren't going to be any more new Hank Aaron autographs in the marketplace. Right. You know, it's just going to be what's out there now. And so, you know, is that, you know, whether people hold on to them, whether that just, you know, that scarcity is going to come back into play. Yeah. Well, my, my great aunt was a science teacher and she had a student whose dad was an um umpire for the San Francisco Giants and so she would get him he would give my aunt balls from games signed by players so that she could give them to my dad it was like so I got a couple crazy ones I'm, I'm curious about this speaking of crazy things I want to hear some stories that you've had with some of these athletes you've been doing this for 10 years you know whatever you're able to share of course but you know I'm cool. sure I'm sure number one the athletes have changed a lot over the 10 year span social media, everything. And yeah. I think, you know, thinking about Tom Brady's, you know, 10th Super Bowl. And I saw a picture of like first Super Bowl and this Super Bowl. And it's like, yeah, wow, this man has become an icon over that time. What are some experience yeah. that you had that are unforgettable? Yeah. So I've, I've been with Panini America for 10 years year 11 actually now. 
And so, God, there's so many stories that like I could go through. Like I, I think of like highlight stories, right? That are just like, wow, that's, I can't believe that happened. Yeah. You know, or whatever. And so, you know, the, the Super Bowl is next week. So I, I have to start with the Super Bowl story, right? And so, and Tom Brady, and I'm a New England Patriots fan and, and all that other stuff. But, you know, the year that they were at the, in the Super Bowl in Houston, you know, our Panini Super Bowl kid reporter, which is part of our sweepstakes program, gets to interview the players on opening night. And so Trent Dilfer works with us on that. Yeah. He's kind of like our lead guard and gets us to the front of the line and knows all the players. So he brings that connection right away. So the players feel super comfortable going like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to have Trent ask me this question instead of some random crazy person <laughs> asking me a question in a, like, in a bridesmaid outfit. Right. Right. You know, um, or a, a bride's outfit. And so, you know, so he gets up and he asks, you know, Brady says, hey, you know, Tom, you know, I've got our Super Bowl kid reporter here. You know, he wants to ask you a question. And so, you know, our Super Bowl kid reporter at the time, Joseph Perez, was seven years old. And he, he said, you know, a lot of people look up to you is their hero and role model. Who's your hero? Oh, I remember so, this. Yeah. You remember that video. Yeah. I mean, the video, it'll make its way this My week. Dad, Everyone will see it. Right? That was our kid reporter. Yeah. And like, he oh just pauses and gets choked up and like people like, you know, I mean, just gets so choked up and then, you know, responds with his dad, but it was such this long pause. Yeah. Like I remember like there's all this chaos on, on opening night and there's all these media people around you. And so like, you're just used to chaos. And then like, there's this silence mm. and everyone's like, wait, but, like the, the silence was like, like the pause was long enough for people to be like, wait a minute, what's happening? Yeah. You know? And then he pauses and comes out and says his dad, and he's all choked up and the thing blows up, goes viral. Wow. Like everyone's going crazy over it. And so you're just like, whoa. And this is like coming out of like, you know, the year before he, well, that season he was suspended four games because of deflate gate, you know, all this other stuff. And right. there's, you know, I, I, I think it brought like this level of humanness to, to people and, and Tom Brady and, and seeing him react that way because you're so used to seeing players at Super Bowl say the things that they're supposed to say and not say the things that they're not supposed to say. Yeah. And they, they don't like, they almost don't become human. And so, you know, to see that like real reality and like see that come to life, like that was just like, that's highlight number one, like top of the list. Right. That's um, amazing. You know, I think like another like super cool experience. I remember like Andrew Luck's rookie year uh, right after his season. Um, me and one other colleague had to go out to San Francisco he was practicing in Stanford and we went out to meet him so he could sign, you know, finish signing his trading cards from his rookie year and sign some memorabilia. And so it's me, my colleague and Andrew Locke. And it just so happens to be the day the world, you know, came to know Pope Francis. So we're sitting there like literally watching wow. the new Pope, like, well, he's signing cards. And I was just like, this is so like surreal. Like you're sitting this you're sitting here, just, you know, the three of us and we're sitting here like, you know, and Andrew, you know, played at Stanford, yeah. you know, smart, like super intelligent, all this other stuff. He's like, you know, we said to him, like, what do you want to watch? You know? And he's like, no, I want to keep this on. Like, this is like, guys, this is like, you know, real world stuff. We need to watch this. And so we're just sitting there like, <laughs> is he signing away? watching like this new Pope, you know, come to be, yeah, uh, which was like, so super cool. And then I'll share like one real funny story, please. So you know who Brian Bosworth is the boss, you have this like super mega personality, the, the 80s, shades, like the hair. Yeah. Everything. I mean, you don't, if you're too young to know who Brian Bosworth is or the boss, just go Google the boss. And I mean, he was like it in the eighties. And so a few years ago, we were at the college football national championship mm -hmm. and we brought Brian Bosworth in to do some media for us and, and to do some, you know, and to do some meet and greets and sign autographs for fans. And so cool. we both get in on Saturday night and he's got the room next to me. Um, and, <laughs> nice. and of course, like, so I, I, I had put the name in my, I put the room in my name cause I wasn't sure. I was like, it's Brian Bosworth. Like people are going to be like, Oh my God, Brian Bosworth is here. So right. I had two rooms in my name. One was for me and one was for him. Yeah. And so Sunday morning comes and we're getting ready to like do the media and I'm starving. So I order breakfast 
And you know, I'm waiting for the breakfast to come, <laughs> waiting, waiting, waiting. 45 minutes comes, nothing happens. I'm like, where is my breakfast? I'm freaking out. <laughs> finally, the, finally, the breakfast comes and I open it up and it's like the wrong thing. I'm like, what the heck? And I'm like, just uh, now I'm just annoyed. Right. You know, and my colleague's like, just return it. Like, just send it back. And I was like, no, I don't have time. I need to just eat something. I'm freaking out. I need to eat something. So I eat it, you know, next thing you know, Boz, you know, is like, yo, hey, I'll be in in a few minutes. I'm just waiting for my breakfast to come. So I'm like, okay. So then I go walk into his room and like, and I'm like kind of prepping him for media. And he's on the phone with the, with the person. And, and I, I can only hear it from Brian, from, from the Boz's side. Right. So like, I don't know what the other person saying. And, and Boz is like, yeah, so I ordered this. And I'm like, he's like, I ordered this, this egg white omelet with tomatoes, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that egg white omelet sounds like mine, you know? And then he's like, I ordered it with goat cheese. And I was like, Uh-oh. I definitely did not order mine with goat cheese. But I remember when I opened up the omelet, I'm like, what the hell is this? And so it, I soon start to realize, oh my God, I just ate the boss's breakfast. <laughs> and he, they sent it to my room and not his room because it was both in my name. So you know, they had canceled my original order thinking that I had just changed my order. So of course, you know, oh my gosh. the boss is like, I, I was like, Oh my God, mine was late too. Like, I, and he's like, wait, yours was late too. And I was like, yeah. And I ordered bacon. I didn't have bacon on it. And he's like, yeah, he, he said he ordered his food and his didn't even have, you know, bacon on it. So i never told the boss <laughs> if he ever hears this, he's going to know now that I ate his breakfast. But I was just like, and my friend, my, my colleagues in the other room just laughing, going like, oh my God, he just ate the boss's breakfast. And the boss is now freaking out because he hasn't had any food either. That's <laughs> incredible. So that's, yeah, I was like, that's like one of those stories that you're like, oh, you, how would this ever happen? Yeah. You know, uh, like 12 year old me reading Brian Boz's auto, you reading the boss's autobiography. And now I'm like eating his breakfast by, <laughs> by accident because it was delivered to my room because he's in the other room. That's in my name. Like just so super weird. That's incredible. I, I think what's so neat is you've had such personal experiences with all these athletes. You know, it's, it's yeah. not just, Oh, I work in entertainment and I've been around people or, or, you know, mm-hmm. we all get jaded no matter what we do, right? It seems normal. And yeah. but the fact that you've had, I mean, it was kind of the similar thing with Trent Dilfer when you, you know, brought me over to the high school. It was just the three of us talking. And it's just like dudes talking where, you know, you let the guard down, you get to experience what somebody is really like, like with the Andrew Luck example you gave. Yeah. And those are the yeah. most, you know, the most meaningful experiences I've had with, you know, celebrities or professional athletes has been those private moments when the cameras are off, when you get to experience something just very isolated and, and real life, not Instagram. Yeah. And I think that's what we try to do with our trading cards too, is like, you know, with our trading cards, like, you know, there, and we've done this from a marketing perspective forever is like, you know, they're the guys that are on our cards. They're the guys that fans connect to we need to bring those trading cards to life. And so how do we do that outside of a two and a half by three and a half piece of cardboard, you know? And so when, what we do is we bring the experience, right? I, I, my background has been experiential marketing yeah. in some form or fashion in the last 20 years. So I know like that's what resonates. Mm-hmm. And so when you bring a player, you know, into an environment, they get a chance to interact with other people and with fans and collectors and consumers you know, it creates another level of connectivity to that player where they're like, wow, you know what? I didn't really like Brian Bosworth when, when he played, but now I'm meeting him. He's so incredible. Like he's a super cool dude. I want to go collect his cards. Yeah. You know? And so that's super important. And that's what we do with all of our athletes is like, you know, bring that to life, you Mm -hmm. know, and share that experience so that they can see behind the curtain and that's like really what we've focused in the last 10 years. And it's why, you know, Panini is who they are today, why people say that we're the leader and why people are connected to us and why brands want to work with us and leagues want to work with us is because we connect to the player and we bring that player to life, you know, in our cards and through marketing, you know, to connect to fans. And that's what drives people wanting to go out and get Luka Doncic cards or mm-hmm. John Morant cards or, you know, whoever, 
So, I mean, that's the stuff that's like so super important. It's all kind of, you know, it's that mix that you have to have, you know, to be successful in whatever you do, right? Like as soon as you can, yeah. you know, personalize something and bring that personalization to life, that connectivity, you can't break that connectivity. That's true. You know, so good experience or bad experience, right? Like you have a bad experience. You're like, you remember that experience no matter what. And that dude could have just had a bad day. Yeah. You know? Good point. Yeah. I think relatability is so strong, you know, and I remember I was, uh, used to work for this pro skateboarding contest and I remember, you know, the head guy, you know, he was meeting people. He'd have some make a wish, you know, situations and stuff like that, but he makes such a purposeful connection with every little kid who he met. And I saw him say, Hey, I'm Rob shake the hand eyes, you know, made that connection. And same thing with the next kid. And boy, I've had some experiences like that when I was a little kid, when I met a pro skater or professional athlete and you never forget those. And you're always a fan of that person, no matter what. And you're probably going to follow them beyond just that team too, you know, Mm -hmm. to, you know, when they're retired and and they've got other merchandise uh, for sale. Yeah. Well, I (laughs) I have one more question for you because you've, you've had such an incredible career. I feel like your experiences are what a lot of people uh, listening to this who are younger might say, man, how do I do that? Or how do, you know, this guy's found his passion. I'm sure it's more complex than that. But if you have one or two just gems that you can drop to our audience about pursuing, doing something that's fulfilling in your career, what would, what would that be? God, you know, it's funny. Like, I I think that, you know, I I started out in college and, you know, at Boston University and I wanted to be a poli-sci major. And so, like, I thought, like, wow, the books are great, like, just super, like, that's what I want to do, you know? And then when I got to my sophomore year, I started to think about, like, okay, what am I going to do with this, like, poli-sci degree, like, when I graduate? I was like, oh, yeah. And and so someone had said to me, like, hey, you should go into public relations. You'd be perfect for public relations. Mm. I was like, what the heck is that? Yeah. And so then naturally I took some PR classes and it was like, it just felt natural to me. Like I was like, I didn't have to study. I was always like answering the questions in class. I'm not normally a answer questions in class type of person. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, so like, I was like, Oh my God, like this just feels like this is like intuitive to me. Like I need to do this. And mm. so I had this amazing professor mm. and there's a, and there's a reason why I'm telling this. So I had this amazing professor, Jack Fowler from Boston university. He wrote for sports illustrated. I remember that like he always had his classes first thing in the morning. Cause he always said, if you really want to be in this game, you really want to be in this business, you'll show up for my class at eight o'clock in the morning Oh wow! or you won't. Good point. You know? And so it was like, never fail. You, you're there at eight o'clock in the morning. And, you know, and then the other thing that was super cool that I remember about him was that, you know, it was like, we're not going to go from textbooks. We're going to go from real world, Yes. you know? And so we're, I'm not going to ask you to go buy a textbook. I'm not going to go ask you to do this. We're going to go real world and I'm going to bring, bring people in from the real world to share their experiences, Yeah. you know, and, and tell their stories of how they got to where they were. And so, and then, you know, my senior year, you know, the NHL all-star game was in Boston. And, and so Jack had said, Hey, they're looking for volunteers. You know, is anyone interested? I'll give you the, you know, the week off to just go do this as an inter is an internship to experience it. Yeah. So I went and I did it. And it's funny, the first day on that internship, they had me, you know, stacking boxes and all this other stuff. And I was uh-huh. like, wait, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, <laughs> you know, so the, the answer to that is like, you've got to grind, you've got to pay your dues, mm-hmm. right? To get to where you are in that passionate, you know, part of your life that you just really enjoy. Uh, so you put in the work, but then you also got to be smart too and look for the opportunity. And so, you know, that first day I'm, you know, stacking boxes and I'm like, man, this is not what I went to Boston University for, you know? So the yeah. next morning I decided to get up, I put on a suit. I walked into the broadcasting and credentials department. And I said, hey, they just told me to come down here. And of course, like in the middle of an event, people are super chaotic. They don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We need you. Genius. You know, and so the next three, three to four days, I was in the broadcasting rights holders department, you know, with the NHL, you know, working at the skills competition, working at the all-star game. And I came out of that event and I was like, 
if I could marry PR and sports, I would have the dream job because wow. I'm not going to play on a football field. I'm not going to play in a basketball arena. Yeah. You know, this would be amazing. And so I set my path for like figuring that part out. And then reality comes and everyone wants to do that. And so you're like, <laughs> now what? And you're yeah. like, you go get a real job. You go get a real job mm. and you keep doing the things that you need to do to get to where you need to be and put yourself in that position for an opportunity, right? So I went, got a real job, you know, worked in an investor relations firm in New York City, mm -hmm. you know, for one and a half years and got to the point where it was like, okay, now what? Like, do I keep going this investor relations route or do I take that shot, you know? Yeah. And so I, I took a shot with an arena football league team didn't even get a call back, mm. you know, found out that they hired a PR director, found out who that person was. I called them up and I was like, Hey, congratulations. You know, you need a number two, you know, you're number two. And so wow. he's like, man, I want you to come in and talk to me. And so I went in and I met with them and he's like, we can't afford to pay you. We're a small sports team. Don't quit your day job. But if you do this stuff on the side, you know, I'll take care of you. We'll pay you on game day. And, I, and he's like, but don't quit your day job. So I did that. The next thing you know, I moved on to a sports marketing agency, Alan Taylor Communications in New York City, because of those opportunities. But the thing that was so cool about this, and of course, I would have never thought this mm -hmm. at the time, but when I went in and I met with Alan Taylor and the rest of the team there, the thing that they liked about what I had was that I had this passion for sports but I understood the business side of it yes, because of my work in investor relations, which I would have never thought like that would have been the thing. Right. Right. But they're like, no, we need people to understand our clients off of the sports pages and in the business pages. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to tell that story from a sports business perspective was super important to them, you know? And so that's where, that's how they hired me. They hired me because of that sports business background. And so I would tell you, you know, just keep looking for opportunities. You know, the people that are trying to figure that stuff out, I would tell you, and I, I've told, you know, many people this, like, if you want to get into the sports game, there are so many ways to get into the sports game, you know, from a, you know, from a business and marketing perspective, right? Like, I think everyone always thinks like, Oh my God, I need to go work for a team. I need to go work for a league. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone wants to try to do that. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. I love the people that work there it's hard work when they're in the season, like they have nothing but that True. they don't have time for family. They don't have any of those things. And when you're 20 years old, you don't really care about that, yeah. you know, but when you're 30 or 28 years old, you start to care a little bit more about that and then what? And so what I tell people is like, don't always just look for the league or the team. If you want to get into this space, you know, look for the people that have, you know, brands that are tied to sports, Yeah, you know, whether that's, you know, They've got strong sponsorship, you know, ties to sports, you know, they've got, you know, they're part of an agency that works with sports, you know, across brands and all those other things. Yeah. You know, they, they have a, what I call, you know, they have a vested interest in sports. So you could be part of a sneaker company. You could be part of a, like, you know, IBM, you could be part of a, you know, you know, a business to business, business, you know, company that has sports sponsorship that yeah. needs help there. Right. So like, look for those types of opportunities, but you've got to grind. Like, I mean, yeah. no matter what, I mean, I, I'm still in this and I'm still grinding, you know, but I, it just, exactly. it, but it's different when you grind and you love what you do. Right. And so that's the part that's super important. That's cool. I love that. Two things I really took away from that. One is being a translator between two groups of people who can't really talk to each other. For example, the sports guys, and then the business guys, I've seen that yeah. both in my background with design and then also in esports. And the other thing is, you know, yeah, what's tangential to the thing that you're passionate about? For me, what was big for me was being at GameStop with esports. I didn't, I had a much different mm -hmm. experience than if I was at a team and I was competing with all these teams. And I was able to build great yeah. relationships with everybody because I could yeah. partner with everybody. So, man, I really love yeah. that. That's such fantastic insight. Is there anything else you want to um, share with our audience before I let you go today? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot. You know, I love, I love having conversations and catching up with you, John. So it just felt like it was a good catch up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us on Twitter, you know, where can we find you? Where can we find Panini? 
Yep. So uh, Panini, at uh, Panini America, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, you name it, that's where we are at. And then me, I'm a sports marketing guy, sports MKTG guy. So cool. that's me. He's a good follow, ladies and gentlemen. I follow him and it's it's very entertaining. So, uh, <laughs> well, thank you again for, for joining me here on the DLC Drop podcast. I know our audience got a ton out of this episode. Thank you for your time. Looking forward to talking again soon. Absolutely appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. 